A few years ago, uh, one of my best friends went through a divorce. And it was just awful for him. He had either just become a Christian, or he was just about to become a Christian, uh, when his non-Christian wife decided that he was too boring, and she wanted to go overseas and expand her career, and he was a liability now, and so she wanted something new, and she decided to dump him. And the turmoil that that man faced over the next few years, in fact, I, I cannot describe. It was dreadful. Divorce is very painful. I don't think anyone here, as far as I know, has uh, experienced divorce uh, personally. Uh, but you might have had someone you love uh, face that. You might have seen that in your parents. Um, you might have seen that in friends. Um, uh, you may have experienced divorce, and I, and I don't know about it. Right? Whatever it is, if that's you, sometimes it's it's quite painful uh, to hear a talk on this. All right. So, if if it, that is you, then then please feel free to come and talk to me talk with me afterwards, or talk with one of your brothers and sisters uh, that you trust, uh, and uh, so that we can support you uh, and we can pray with you. All right. We're all here for each other. On the other hand, there'll be many people here who are not married, in fact, not even close to being married, and you're thinking, oh, what's the talk? On, what's, what's this passage really have to say to me? Uh, what's the relevance of something on marriage and divorce and, and all that? You know, why, why look at this passage? Why not skip this passage and go on to the next one? <laughs> um, well, there are two things, I think. First of all, that is something that for most of us will come up in the future. Uh, there is... Most of you will get married at some stage or other, if you're not already. Some of you are married, uh, and most of you uh, will will uh, will get married, uh, and some of you won't, and some of you won't for some reasons that we'll talk about later. And I think all of us, all of us will come face to face with marriage and divorce. Right? All of us will have friends. Uh, who will go through this this uh, this issue of divorce? So it's not a it's not an irrelevant issue. And secondly, is that even if it doesn't affect you directly now, now then is a good time to think about it. Uh, now is a good time to consider it uh, and to work out what you think the Bible says about it, so that you've actually worked it out in advance, not waiting for it to happen. Oh no, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So you've actually worked it out now beforehand. Uh, so when the time comes, you know what to do. Having said that, let's let's uh, begin and let's uh, begin in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that your word speaks to us um, in in our situations. Our oh, Father, we uh, we do pray that uh, as we consider this this passage together, uh, that your Spirit would be at work in our hearts, uh, that that you will speak to each one of us uh, in a way that uh, that's relevant to us and that we would respond to you properly. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 19 is the start of a new section in Matthew's Gospel, uh, his biography of Jesus. Uh, Jesus has spent most of his ministry in Galilee, in the north part of the country, but now he headed south, verse 1, to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And even there, down south, he had huge crowds following him. Many people wanted healing from various illnesses, and verse 2, he healed them. 
This kind of uh, popularity would have been something that was threatening to the religious leaders of the time, among whom were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious group who tried to very strictly keep the law of Moses. And, all, and not just the law of Moses, the, the law that God gave them through Moses in the Old Testament, not just that, but a whole heap of other traditions as well. They were highly respected men. They were highly regarded as, as righteous men. But they tended to be self-righteous and look down on others. And because they were legalists, they would also look for loopholes in the law to try and get away from the things that God really wanted them to do because they were trying to obey the law. Anyway, these are these Pharisees, the religious elite of the time. But then here is Jesus with great crowds following him and so they are threatened by him. And they try to trap him by asking him a difficult question. Listen to their question in verse 3 of chapter 19. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Is it permitted? Is it allowable to divorce one's wife for any cause? Or does it have to be a specific cause? Or causes? If so, then, you know, what are the causes? After all, there was a debate going on at the time between two rival groups of Pharisees. One faction said, it's okay to divorce your wife for any reason you like. The other faction said, no, 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 it's only okay to divorce your wife if she's been unfaithful. Then you can divorce her. And we'll look at the passage involved later. But Jesus cuts across that whole debate by taking the Pharisees back to Genesis 1 and 2. Now, Genesis 1 and 2 are very important chapters in the Bible. They're important because they tell us about life before the fall, before sin came into the world. Genesis 2 gives us the ideal, the blueprint, the pattern of living that God really wants. It sets out the ideal for relationship with Him, for relationship with each other, for relationship with the world around us. And the key relationship in that is the marriage relationship. So marriage is not just a, a social convention. It's not just a good idea. It's not something people just dreamed up. Oh, look, it'd be good. Why don't we get, you know, have marriage and then we could, oh, yeah. No, no. It's a very important part of God's plan for humanity. And so Jesus takes the Pharisees back to the beginning, back to Genesis, to see what God's intention for marriage is. And when he does that, he speaks to them rather sarcastically. Look at verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Remember, he's talking to Pharisees. These are guys who studied and studied and studied the law. And Jesus says, Have you not read? You know, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's like going to an accountant and saying, Yeah, don't you realize the difference between debit and credit? Huh? It's, these guys are meant to be experts, and this is basic stuff. It's page two of the textbook. Right? Have you not read this? Verse four again. That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That's from Genesis 1. God, the creator, made humans male and female. And Genesis 2 explains the implications of that. The God who made them male and female, Jesus quotes Genesis 2 in verse 5, said, 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so the fact that God has created the male and female means that he intended marriage. And the marriage is between a man and his wife. Right? So it's one man, one woman. Not one man, many women. Not one man and another man. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So it's Adam and Eve. Not Adam and Eve and Sarah and Joyce and May May and you know. And it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Marriage is between a man and his wife. Furthermore, God says, when a man and a woman get married, it's not just that she leaves her parents to come to him, but a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife. So marriage creates a new bond between a man and a woman that's even stronger than the bond between parents and their child. It's even stronger than that blood bond there. It's a bond that's expressed sexually, and it's a bond that God describes as becoming one flesh. And so Jesus says in verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. United by God, God makes them one. Whether they're married in a church building or in a garden, by a pastor or by a magistrate, with a kanduri or with a cup of tea, doesn't matter to the marriage. In marriage, God makes two people one. And therefore, Jesus says in the second half of verse 6, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. If God has made you one, then you should not tear yourself apart again. God's plan for marriage is clear. It's permanent. It's binding. It is not meant to be dissolved. So, does God want people to be divorced? And the answer must be, no. It's not meant to be an option. What God has joined together, let man not separate. That's the principle. That's the plan. That's God's intention from the beginning. And divorce is not part of the picture. Hang on there, Jesus, the Pharisees say. You forgot something. We read the Bible and the law of Moses allows divorce. And the law of Moses, that's, that's God's law. How, how do you explain that? As they put it in verse 7, they say, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? See, divorce must be okay, because Moses said so. Well, before we look at Jesus' answer to the question, we need to think about the passage that they're referring to, because they knew the passage they were talking about, Jesus knew the passage they were talking about, Matthew knew the passage we were talking about, but I suspect most of us don't know the passage that we're talking about. Alright, have a look at together at Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, you can look in your Bible or you can look on the screen. Here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house poor lady, eh? Or if the latter man dies he who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. But that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Now look at that. Listen again to the question of the Pharisees. Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Look at that. Does Moses actually command them to do that? He doesn't really, does he? He says, if this happens... And a woman was divorced from her husband, and then divorced from her second husband, she can't go back to her first husband. So, you can't play husband and wife swapping games. You know, okay, I divorce you, and then you go there, okay, then you divorce you, come back, and you go, alright, that's an abomination. That's awful. And the law of Moses, God's law, prevents that kind of abominable evil. But Deuteronomy doesn't say you should divorce. It doesn't command divorce, it just presupposes it will happen. And stops something that's even worse. Now, of course, implicitly, as it does that, it acknowledges that divorce is possible. It implicitly describes the use of this certificate of divorce. Which, if the divorce was going to happen anyway, would at least protect the woman in the relationship and allow her to marry another man. Because if not in that society, she'll be destitute. Because unless she has a certificate, no one's going to marry her. Because if her ex-husband wants to be nasty, he could accuse them both of adultery and have them both executed. So the law of Moses doesn't actually command divorce, but it regulates it. And by doing so, implicitly allows it. So the question of the Pharisees is not quite right. But, even though it's not quite right, there's still a question there, isn't there? If God's plan, God's pattern, God's will, which we see in Genesis 2, is for marriage to be permanent, then why does Moses even allow divorce in this kind of sense? Well, Jesus answered the question in verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart. God's people were sinful and stubborn. They did not follow him properly. They did not obey him properly. And so God gave them a law like this one, through Moses, to regulate their failure and to prevent further evil. What God allows, or God tolerates, in Deuteronomy, is not what God really wants. It's not God's absolute perfect will. It's not the pattern that he desires. It's, it's a concession to the fact that we live in a, in a sinful, fallen world, and Israel is a stubborn, hard-hearted people. God doesn't want divorce. He wants faithfulness. And divorce mucks around with his plan for humankind. But because he knew, he knew Israel, he knew it would happen anyway, he permitted it 
so as to make the best of a terrible situation. So, what's the answer to the Pharisees' first question then? Is divorce lawful? Is it permittable? Is it allowed by God? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy, the answer, I guess, is yes, in some circumstances. Not any and every circumstance, not just at a whim, but where there is real indecency. And then the Pharisee, of course, needs to know what indecency is. The lax ones will say anything. The wife burns the food, that's pretty indecent. All right, you can divorce her. A strict one say indecency, sexual immorality, and then you argue what constitutes that and how far you go. And Jesus doesn't want to go there. He says, you are asking the wrong question. Remember, the Pharisees were legalists. They studied the law because they thought that, that by it they could get right with God. Now, now, we are sinful. We cannot possibly perfectly obey God. But if you think your salvation depends on keeping the law of God, then what you have to do in order to have any hope at all is to make it easier. You have to look for loopholes. Am I allowed to divorce? What would give me the right to do so? It's the wrong question. If you ask the wrong question, you might get the wrong answer. A misleading answer. I need to ask a better question. The question that Jesus actually answered when he went back to Genesis. The question that's asked by people who don't have hard hearts, but who have hearts that are soft, hearts upon whom the Spirit has worked, so that we have hearts that long to obey God. Question for New Covenant people. Here's the question. How can I please God in the circumstances in which he has placed me? How can I please God? What does the Bible say God's plans and purposes are? How can I be part of that? From what I can tell from God and his character, his plans and his purposes in the scriptures, what can I do to follow him? How can I act in a way that will make him glad, even if it's tough? How can I show his love, his justice, his mercy, his grace in this situation? What little part can I play to maintain the pattern that he set up at the beginning? So that marriage is seen as the important thing that it is. Now, pleasing God from the heart may not be easy. might be a big sacrifice. But it's the attitude from the inside. And you cannot legislate for that. You cannot keep, make a rule that everyone will keep the pattern, because in this fallen world it might be impossible. But what God wants is a heart that wants to please him. Now, remember, God doesn't want divorce. He never wanted it. In the Old Testament, there were times where he allowed it because of the hardness of the human heart. But if you have a heart that longs to obey God, then you will do everything you possibly can to avoid it. So what does Jesus conclude from this? Well, verse 9 tells us, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Here's the general principle then. Don't get divorced. And if you do, don't get remarried. 
because divorce and remarriage violate God's pattern. They're against God's will. In fact, Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you divorce your wife and marry another, you are committing adultery. Not legally. You can legally do that and not be technically, you know, committing adultery, but, but Jesus deals with realities that the law cannot touch again. It's the heart. Man looks on the outside, God looks on the heart. And the heart that divorces one woman and marries another is the same heart-heart that sleeps with both at the same time. Both those sins violate the one flesh union of marriage. Both break the vows of marriage. Both displease God. Divorce and remarriage, Jesus says, is serial adultery. However, there is one exception that Jesus gives. Look at verse 9 again. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. But here is, here is one time when divorce may not be due to a hard heart. Here's one time when divorce may be because of something outside the control of the person who is sinned against. Here's one time where divorce and remarriage may not indeed be adultery. Now, if we are Pharisees, we will take this and make it into a new law. We will say, if there has been sexual immorality, you now have the right to divorce your husband or wife and take another one. It's okay because Jesus said so. And that is the New Testament loophole that the modern day Pharisees look for. And forget the whole point that Jesus made about Genesis 2. Friends, if you become the victim of sexual immorality, then it will be very, 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 very painful. There is a terrible, terrible sense of betrayal. It's often a lot of anger and grief and loss and shame and, and you wonder if you can ever trust your partner again. It's an awful thing to face. Please never put your marriage partner through it. Yet in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the pain, you know that God loves you. You don't know why he allowed it to happen, but you have to trust him. That he does all things for your good, and yet your good is you become more and more like Jesus. And so in the midst of the pain, you want to do what pleases him. And you want to try, if at all possible, to avoid divorce. You want to be reconciled with your husband or your wife. You want to forgive him. You want to forgive her as Christ forgave you. It won't be easy because forgiveness is not cheap. It will come at great cost to you personally. Just like forgiveness came at a great cost to Christ as he bore our sins in his body on the cross. But you will try your level best to save your marriage because that's what God wants. That's what he desires. And you have a heart that seeks to please him. But sometimes that's not possible. Maybe that your spouse is unrepentant. They keep on with the wickedness and folly of adultery. 
Maybe that their behavior has so wrecked your marriage that despite everything that you can possibly genuinely have done to remain married, it simply can't work. Your heart wants to follow God's pattern, you do everything you can, but the reality is the pattern has already been destroyed by your partner's unfaithfulness. And if that is the case, then divorce and remarriage is not adultery on your part. It's a grim part of the fallen world that we live in. So God understands that even with hearts that long to please him, we may not be able to save our marriage if our spouse is unfaithful. So, don't be quick to judge people who are divorced. Don't be quick to judge people who are remarried. Ah, they've failed to obey God's word. Ah, they've committed adultery. They may not have. You don't know the whole story. And you don't know what's in their heart. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. One Corinthians seven describes another occasion where this might be the case. It's when we become Christian. Our non-Christian spouse divorces us. In one Corinthians chapter seven, verse fifteen. One Corinthians seven, verse fifteen says. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister has not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Okay? If you're married to an unbeliever, we mustn't divorce them. But if they divorce us, it says we're not enslaved. We're free. Again, this only works for those who have soft hearts to God. If you're a legalist, you'll find a loophole, won't you? Uh, don't divorce your husband, you ask him to divorce you, you see, then, then it's okay. Right? But if we have a spirit softened hearts, then again we will do everything we can to prevent a divorce. But if our non-Christian partner who doesn't have this attitude abandons us, then, then we are not bound. But if you're both believers, you're both followers of Jesus, then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 10 and 11, says very, very clearly, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. They don't divorce. But if you do, don't make it worse by marrying someone else. Stay single or be reconciled to your husband. Because you of all people have to fulfill, Christians of all people, uh, should be the ones to fulfill God's pattern for marriage if we're going to be married. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us. Uh, now, that's a hard word, isn't it? That's a hard word. Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us how the Pharisees respond to Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. It doesn't say. But he does tell us the response of the disciples. Matthew chapter 19, we're now in verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That is, they say, look, if God hates divorce so much, if marriage is so binding, that's really restrictive. One man, one woman, just the two of them for the rest of, you know, what if something goes wrong? It's better not, better not, better not, better not to get married. So, is Jesus 
advocating that the best way to live is to be single. Or as you say, we have to get married because it talks about marriage in Genesis 2. Well, he doesn't either way, does he? On the one hand, he doesn't say that the marriage pattern of Genesis 2 means that we all have to be married. Uh, the institution of marriage we see is very, very important to God. But not for a moment does he say that it's wrong to be single. On the other hand, you can't make a blanket statement like the disciples made and say, it's better not to get married. That singleness is not for everyone. Jesus says in verse 11, he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, which I take it is what the disciples have just said in verse 10, but only to those to whom it is given. Not everyone will find that the, it is better not to marry. Now there are those who won't get married, not because they think one partner for life is too restrictive, but for other reasons. The first half of verse 12 has got two of them. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. Our eunuchs are men who have got no functioning testicles, and so therefore lack the testosterone that's produced in the testicles. Some might have been born that way. It's a congenital thing. Uh, some might have been physically castrated. They've had their testicles removed. Now, why would you do that? Well, some, someone who's... No, you wouldn't do that, would you? <laughs> someone who's castrated before puberty, right, will have a high voice, a non-muscular build, uh, small genitals, less aggression, and no sex drive. And they'd be very useful people to have as your servants if you're a king or a queen. So eunuchs back in those days often served in high positions in royal courts because they could be trusted, you see, in these sensitive areas. So less likely to attack the women of the court or try to seduce them. Uh, no one could say, you know, this child of so-and-so queen is actually from her courtier because, well, he's a eunuch. Um, uh, and since they didn't marry and didn't have kids, they're not tempted to start a dynasty of their own, less likely to rebel. Uh, and, and so people made eunuchs, you see. So, there are some eunuchs, are eunuchs from birth, and some have been made eunuchs by men. Now, the two standard categories of eunuchs. And then Jesus has a third category. He says in the second half of verse 12, And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, he's not talking literally there. right? If he was talking literally, that would just be an example of eunuchs made by men, isn't it? He's talking about people who decide not to get married, who remain celibate for life for the sake of the kingdom. Even though marriage is a very important thing, the kingdom is more important. And so there will be some people who will purposely give up marriage and family so they can concentrate on the things of the kingdom. Paul also talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, he says in 7, uh, verse 32 to 34, The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now he's not saying it's wrong to want to please your husband or please your wife. In fact, you have to, he says, if you want to be married. But if you decide not to get married then you don't have to worry about those things. You can concentrate on spiritual things. 
And on other number of people who've done that. There are famous people like John Stott. You heard of John Stott? Old band now. Great British evangelical leader. John Chapman. Great Australian evangelist. Vaughan Roberts. Rector Sedebs writes those great little books. All kinds of things they can do with all their time and energy because they don't have to worry about marriage and children and all that. Well, there's a cost involved. It's a big one. But that's what they've chosen to do for the sake of the kingdom. If you are single, then at least think about whether this could be you. Are you someone whose sexual passions are not strong, relatively easy to keep under control? Someone who would be quite okay emotionally being unmarried for the rest of your life? Is someone who would be keen to devote your life to serving God and proclaiming the gospel without the, inverted commas, distraction of marriage? If you're all those things, then just think about becoming a eunuch for the kingdom. On the other hand, we can't insist on it. For anyone, God doesn't say we have to. Getting married is a good thing, not a bad thing. And the Pharisees among us cannot make rules and regulations, say, oh, you have to, or you can't, or if you want to be a gospel worker, it's just not a requirement for gospel ministry. Apostle Paul was single. The Apostle Peter took a believing wife with him in his ministry. Being a eunuch for the kingdom is not for everyone. It's, it's not for me. My, it isn't. My, my delight is, is having a wife and serving with her till death do us part. And if you are married, then it's not for you either. But if you're not married, it may be for you. It, it may not be. Verse 12, Jesus says, Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Right, so the fact is, the fact that the marriage is permanent, a divorce is wrong, shouldn't stop us from getting married. And there may be other reasons that we don't get married. He's talked about it here. But this, this needn't be one of them. What we see now that is God's design for marriage, God's plan for marriage, that it should be permanent. And as God's people who want to please him, then divorce and remarriage are, are not really options. In fact, they're equivalent to adultery, spiritually. Except when in this fallen world you reach a point where despite every effort on your part, your partner's adulterous unfaithfulness destroys the marriage, or an unbelieving spouse sends you away. Otherwise, do not divorce. And if you do divorce, do not remarry. Not even stay single or be reconciled to your partner. Brothers and sisters, before we conclude, I have four things I need to say as we consider this area of marriage and divorce. Firstly, after Jesus died and rose again, God at last revealed why this marriage pattern in Genesis 2 is so important to him. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 tells us that that bit in Genesis 2 about that one flesh is actually referring to Christ and his church. And so marriage is meant to be a pointer. It's meant to be a shadow, a reflection of how Christ relates to his church. That's how God had set it up for in the beginning. 
And Christ is always faithful. Jesus will not divorce his church. And so if we are to truly reflect the relationship between Christ and the church in marriage, then divorce is also unthinkable. Secondly, after a sermon like this, please don't start thinking of all your divorced friends and think what sinners they are. That we are all sinners. And just in case you think that you're better than someone who is divorced and remarried, because Jesus said that's committing adultery, let me remind you that Jesus also said that if you look upon a woman in order to lust, you are also committing adultery. None of us have any grounds to feel superior, do we? Thirdly, I want to say something about the pain of not remarrying because of what Jesus says and the pain of faithfulness in difficult marriages. See, if you've, if someone's been married and got used to married life and then become single again after a divorce, that's, that's often painful. Now, some people say, look, I never want to go through this kind of divorce again, so I never want to get married again. But other hand, other people think, I've got to find an alternative, partner. But if we're looking to please God from the heart, then unless we can honestly say that, that we fall into this, an exception here, then our option is to be reconciled or to remain single. And that, that can be a painful thing, a long-term painful thing. But if we know that now that we've been divorced, which was wrong before, but now we know that, okay, now we're divorced, Singleness is, is, is God's will for us now, then, then we will do it for him. Because he loves us. He really does. And we know that he wants what is best for us. And he can use this as an opportunity to grow more like Christ. He can even use the loneliness of singleness after divorce to, to cause us to rely on him. I spoke right at the beginning about the pain of divorce. Sometimes being faithful in a hard marriage is even more faithful, more, more painful. Now because with divorce, even though it's very painful, people generally tend to get better, move on after a few years. But the pain of going on in a difficult marriage goes on and on and on, and on. But if we know that faithfulness in a difficult marriage is God's will for us, then we will do it for him. Because he loves us, he really does, then what he wants for us is the best thing for us. One of the best things for us to grow more like Jesus, isn't it? And so God can even use the pain and the struggles of a difficult marriage to stretch us and grow us to be more sacrificially faithful, like Jesus. But it's not easy. But God will help us to persevere, because he's given us his spirit. Having said that, though, whether we're struggling with singleness 
whether we're struggling with marriage, struggling with divorce, God has gifted his church with brothers and sisters to strengthen us and help us and encourage us. That's what we're here for. We're here for each other. Now, wisdom says you do it with someone of your own gender, especially this kind of thing. But do look to each other for support and strength. Look to God's people. And for those struggling with marriage, God has gifted his church with, with people who are skilled in marriage counseling. If you're married uh, who are, and you're here, come and speak to me if you've got difficulties. And I'll put you in touch with a good marriage counselor. Getting help. If you ever get married and you have struggles with your marriage, then get help. Right? It's, a, it's a wise, it is a godly, it is a humble thing to do. Nothing to be ashamed of. And finally, can I remind you that even when sinful divorce and remarriage have taken place, they are not unforgivable sins. Jesus died on the cross for all our sins, including this one. He took the punishment for all our sins, including this one. He paid the price for all our rebellion, all our hard-heartedness on our behalf. So whatever we have done, God can forgive us through Jesus. He can declare us not guilty, even though we are, because Jesus bore our guilt. And so we can stand before him, holy and blameless, spotless and clean, perfectly acceptable to him, because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. So if you have sinned in any of the ways we talk about today, then don't go home feeling guilty. Come to the cross. Confess your sins. And know the forgiveness that only God can give you. The liberating forgiveness that God can only give you through the death of his son. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For pardon, this I see. For cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross for us to take away our sins, to make us right with you. We thank you for the forgiveness and eternal life that we have through him. Our Father, we pray that we, in our relationships and in our lives, would reflect more and more his character. We pray that you will change us more and more to be like him through whatever difficulties that you have set for us. Our Father, we we pray that in our marriages, for those of us who are married, and in our future marriages, for those of us who will get married in the future, that we would reflect the love and the faithfulness of the relationship between the Lord Jesus and your church. Father, we, we pray that you make us people who are not just looking to the law 
to find loopholes and work out ways of getting out of things. But people who want to serve you from the heart um, in all the different areas of, of life. Father, please forgive us for our attitudes that don't reflect that. Help us to be people who, who really, really want to please you because we love you. And we, and we love you because we know that you loved us first. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.